Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah 2 and verse 20. For those who haven't been with us, we're kind of picking right up in the middle of the chapter. It's the indictment that is presented in chapter 2 is lengthy. And so this is just simply the second part. I'll try and tie those things together as we move. But we begin in verse 20, Jeremiah chapter 2. This is God's word. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean, I have not gone after the bales? Look at your way in the valley. Look what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her weary them, need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel will be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children that they took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things you say, I'm innocent. Surely his anger is turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You, sh- you shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you have set awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come, yet you have the forehead of a whore. 
you refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me, My Father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, a sobering passage to read. Would you take this and use it as we've sung this morning? Speak to our hearts. Take your word, plant it deeply within us. Help us to understand. Lord, more than just comprehension, I pray that you would change our hearts, that you would lead us to repentance, that we would fall on your mercy, that you would be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned last week is part one of this indictment that God gives against Judah. It is the formal charge that he presents to them for his discipline that would come primarily through the occupying force of Babylon. Babylon would come in, would take over, would lead many into exile. But even in this passage, we see that the discipline wasn't limited to the occupying force of Babylon, but we see the passage mention the spring rains being withheld. So it isn't as if God has not been working on his people throughout all this time, withholding this intense judgment far off, but he has been chastening them all along that they would repent. In this part, the second part of the the indictment, we see a number of metaphors, pictures. Some of them are a little less comfortable for us to hear and read uh, as we look at them. But the point that God is trying to make is that it is their hearts, their worship, their love, their allegiance to him that he desires, not simply their external conformities. I mentioned a few weeks ago, maybe, I don't know when it was, but recently, how sometimes when I approach the Old Testament, it's kind of all hot or all cold. And I think that that's a misunderstanding. Uh, so when we see times of, of, of obedience, times of living rightly before God, we might think that that was everybody, but it wasn't. And at other times when we see Israel living wrongly before God, there was still a remnant. There were still those who followed him faithfully. And so in this sense, what was happening is, you know, We know during Jeremiah's ministry lasted about 40 years. During the first part, Josiah was the young king who brought reform to the nation, rediscovering the lost book of the law that was in the dusty bin, so to speak, of the temple and and brought real reform. So there were practices going on. But much like we do today, we can so easily turn prescribed practices, good practices, things like church attendance and praying and reading our Bibles into these mechanisms by which we think that we're earning God's favor. He's saying to them, it's not your external conformities that I'm looking for. I want your hearts. I want your love, your allegiance, your loyalty. Here are four sections in this last chapter, with the fourth being in chapter 3, beginning in chapter 3. Some commentators break that up and put it with the next section. We're going to look at it all together because it serves really as a bridge or a hinge passage between this indictment and then the coming pronouncement and call to repentance. Now, with that in mind, I want to, to just present one theme that is becoming more and more clear to me as we work through Jeremiah a theme that I want you to keep in mind and look for in this passage today, and that is this. Judah is hopeless. Judah is hopeless on their own, just as we are. 
that apart from God's mercy and saving grace, we are unable to save ourselves. Think of what they had done. They had broken the covenant. They had betrayed the marriage. They are described as being driven by animal instinct toward evil. They even claim it's hopeless in this passage. Here's the point God is making to them. Assyria and Egypt can't save you. Your idols and your Baals can't save you. You can't even save you. He might say to us today, Republicans and Democrats can't save you. Your investments, your health plans, your risk assessments can't save you. Neither can your Christian bumper sticker or t-shirt, your church attendance, or your correctness on an issue save you. You can't even save yourself. It is not until we realize how desperate our situation is that our hearts will be moved toward repentance. We have to understand the depth of our sin before we can comprehend His grace. We have to realize how rebellious we are before we can grasp His prevailing mercy. It is essential that we see our hopelessness before we can fathom that God is our only hope. That's where he is taking Judah through Jeremiah's message. It's where he takes us today as well. You and I have no leg to stand on before a holy God. We're not good, as we read in Psalm this morning, not even a little bit. We have no merit. We have no contribution. We have no token to hold out to him to receive us. It is only and completely by his sovereign mercy that we can be received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So may we lay down our self-righteousness and all our efforts. Let us let go of our good intentions and our sentimental ideas. May we not boast in our accomplishments or good deeds. Rather, let us release all that we hold dear and everything in which we put our hope and trust and come with empty hands and grateful hearts and receive the refreshment that can only come from the fountain of living water. The attitude that we need to have here as we read this, the rest of this indictment upon Judah, is not, woe is them. The attitude that we should read this with is, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm an idolater. I'm the wild vine. I am the one who is stained. I am the stumbling camel. We simply do not grasp the depth of our own sinfulness. We're great at diagnosing other people's problems. All of us have this gift. I have yet to meet a human being who's not good at it. We're really good at pointing out the speck in other people's eyes while blindly missing the log in our own eye. That's why Jesus' parable made such a big, big, big impact. We recognize this in ourselves. We must look no further than the last line of the passage and hear the Holy God say, you have done all the evil that you could. Yes, it's hyperbolic, but it's meant to show the point that this is where we go. We need a rescuer who can save us. We need a rescuer who can save us from ourselves. So in verses 20 to 25, we see Judah described as one with a rebel heart, which again applies to all mankind. We read it in Psalm 53 this morning, Romans 3. A lot of times we attribute it to Romans 3 where it's quoted there as well. None is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. There's none good. No, not one. Verse 20 reveals how they've forgotten the salvation of God and delivering them. I mean, this should have carried them For years, yet they quickly forgot. Now that they're in the land that was promised to them, 
Instead of living lives thankful to God, they are going about after false gods. It says on every high hill and under every green tree. Again, hyperbolic language given to make a point. That the evidence is irrefutable. It's everywhere how you have behaved, how you have lived. There's no one who can argue with the Lord on this. They're guilty. They had denied their true identity as the choice vine in verse 21 and willfully become a wild vine. How does that even happen? It defies the laws of nature. And yet this is what happens when we who belong to God willfully choose to sin against him. And there's more to our willful rebellion than we might realize. Do we willfully reject our guilty stain? And do we just point out the sins of others? We talked about that briefly already. Yeah, we do. Do we willfully neglect the ordinary means of grace, thinking that we're fine on our own without them? Sure. Do we willfully embrace the world's standards for goodness, identity, and acceptance over and above God's standards? None of us is immune to this. We're all affected by the world that we live in. Most of us understand that willfully doing things that we know are sinful is wrong. But what I'm trying to show is that God is going after Judah and he's coming after us as well by his mercy is that he's not interested in our lists of do's and don'ts, in our self-righteousness, in our ways of creating things that we think that we have somehow merited his favor. He wants our hearts. And he's in the business of transforming hearts. And when he transforms hearts, he peels back layers and reveals more and more our sinfulness. I'm becoming more and more convinced that, as I, especially as I talk to older believers, that the mark of Christian maturity is not perfection. The mark of Christian maturity is a greater awareness of our sinfulness and our need of Jesus. Find older believers who get that and walk with them. <laughs> Learn from them. The ones who hold out perfectionism to you, as something that they've attained, beware. Another picture appears in verse 22, the stain of guilt that can't be cleansed. We know about this. We've all had this experience where a stain won't come out no matter how much soap you use. Our best efforts to save ourselves will not save us. They're ineffective. Our seeking others to deliver us will not result in cleansing or freedom but enslavement. In verse 23 and 24, two animals are presented as representing Judah. The first is this young camel. If you've ever seen an adult camel, you know that they appear to defy the laws of physics when they walk. I remember some years ago leading a group in Israel, and we were traveling from one place to another, stopped at a gas station, and often at the gas stations there would be a couple guys with some camels and looking for tourists like us. And so one of the pastors on the trip uh, decides he wants to, while we're filling the, the, the vehicles, wants to go for a camel ride. And this pastor was not quite my size, but close. And the camel's seated. You climb on top of it, and then the camel stands up and then begins to walk around. It is the most awkward thing that you can imagine in nature. It doesn't look like it's ever going to work. And then, of course, we were laughing at him. It was hysterical. But then to add to that, he was continuing to apologize to the camel, leaning over on it, trying not to fall off as the camel wobbled around, apologizing, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, take that picture and imagine the young camel calf. That's the picture that God gives here. 
the one who is unsure of his steps, to exaggerate this picture of someone being tossed around by a wave or a kite flitting in the wind. It is the young camel that can't even walk straight. That is what Judah is living like. The second animal is a wild donkey in her heat sniffing the wind. There is no reasoning with such an animal. If you grew up on a farm, you know what I'm talking about. She's on a mission. None even need to seek her. Judah is intoxicated with lust. And then after the series of pictures that Yahweh provides for them, he then drives the point home in verse 25 saying, in essence, stop this senseless running after foolish things. You can hear the fatherly voice that he comes to them. He he paints this picture so that they can all understand how foolish they're being. Stop it. Knock it off. You're hurting yourselves. And their reply is simply, it's no use. I can't help myself. It's the language of the addict. Unless you look down your nose, all of us are addicts. We don't admit this. We don't like to talk about it. But we all have our addictions, and I'm not just talking about coffee. Some of them, yeah, are socially acceptable. Some addictions are socially acceptable even within Christian circles. Some of our addictions are secret and kept in dark closets. Others use masks and cover them up, working hard that they appear not as addictions. But we all have our idols that we run after. And if you're unsure of what I'm saying here, it may be time to do some diagnostics. One way of doing this is to look at your emotions. Now, we've talked about this recently, but I'll echo it again. We can be righteous in our anger. There is righteous anger. It's just really, really rare for us to be righteous in our anger. Most of us sin in our anger. Uh, Most of our anger is sinful. And when anger emerges in our hearts... It is like the warning light on the dashboard to notify us that there's a problem. What is it that I'm mad about? What is it that I'm in fear of losing? What is being threatened? Because that's often where you'll find your idol. I've mentioned that there's healthy fear recently. Of course, you know that when it comes to snakes, I believe there is a healthy fear. But we all certainly manifest unhealthy fear, and when it rears its head, it's an opportunity to look at the things, the comfort, whatever it is that we're worshiping that we're so concerned about losing. Fear has a way of revealing in our hearts what we're afraid of letting go. What is it that you can't live without? Here's a hint. You usually discover this when you lose it or it's threatened. When you lose something or that thing is threatened, that often reveals to you by your, by your response what it is that you really love. This is your addiction. The thing that you would rather have and hold than Jesus. We all have them. Every one of us. And some of us, let me say this, all of us have idols of our hearts that we're completely unaware of. That's why I said God is in the business of transforming hearts. He's peeling back the layers, revealing these things to us. It's one of the reasons why we need the means of grace, the gathering, the, the word, the pray, prayer. The, the, the Spirit's work through all of these things. Why? To peel back those layers that we might see and understand and repent and grow. We all have them. Judah is guilty. We are guilty. The evidence is all around. She is enslaved to sin because she's willfully forgotten her God.
As we move on to verses 26 to 28, we see how the effects of sin, the effects of exchanging the truth of God for a lie, leads to shame, disillusionment, and often lunacy. The shame here is foretold. It's not the manner of someone being ashamed, that is, regret or remorse, but rather of them being shamed, that they would be publicly scorned. Judah would become a spectacle. They're leaders who've already been called out, and they're going to be called out several more times as we work, work through this book. They're called out for their failure to lead. Why? Because not only are they failing to lead, but they're participating in the same sins that the people are guilty of. And now they are ridiculed by Jeremiah for their derangement. These officials, priests, and prophets are called out for calling a tree father and a stone mother, which is enough for us to think that maybe they're not thinking clearly. But there's more to this, something that is worth looking into, both historical context as well as grammatical insight. First, the grammar. Verse 27 begins with the leaders who say. In the Hebrew, it's, it's better translated, who keep on saying. In other words, this is not a one-off event. This is the practice that has become their routine. This is their habit. This is what they keep on doing. This is the leaders Jeremiah is speaking to. They keep doing this over and over. And next he goes after their idols made of wood and stone. And in this Canaanite pagan culture, they saw the female was represented by wood and the male by stone, and they were, they were attributed as the source of life. And so what Jeremiah does in his, in his uh, speech to them and this indictment that he delivers is he flips them. He reverses them. Why? To ridicule them, to turn them on their head, to show them that they are no gods at all and they are not to be worshipped. And because of this lunacy, it's even more preposterous that they would then, after turning from God, call out to him in their trouble, like running into a burning building on purpose and then yelling at someone to save you. This is what Judah was doing. So Jeremiah mocks them. He mocks them and says, let them arise if they can save you. And this kind of mocking isn't mean. It's not mean-spirited, but rather to show the insanity involved in how Judah is living. It's designed to rattle them, to bring them to their senses. Because as we read at the end of verse 28, they have as many false gods as there are cities in the nation of Judah. They have literally run from God. From verse 29 to the end of the chapter, we see more evidence stacked up against Judah for their sins. The people have failed to respond to the Lord's rebuke. They won't listen. They're acting childish, like a child who covers his ears and makes noise because he doesn't want to hear what's being said. This is what Judah has done. In essence, by killing her prophets, the prophets that God sent, with the message that they needed to hear, it was a message of correction. They chose instead to ridicule and ultimately kill the prophets, to silence the message, because they didn't want to hear it. In verse 32, he compares them to a young lady preparing to be married, asking if she would not care about her wedding dress and looking beautiful on her wedding day. Again, it's just an image for us to see. This is nuts. What young woman doesn't care about what she looks like on her wedding day? What young woman hasn't dreamed about her dress and and the decorations and all? Yet this is what they've done. This is how far they've fallen. This is what they're acting like. It doesn't make sense. The proof of their rebellion is further given in how they've treated the guiltless poor in verse 34. They have neglected those in need. They have sought out their own interests, their own pleasure, their own purposes. You see, the true fruit of our love for God is our love for others, love for neighbor, 
especially the helpless, the vulnerable, the widow, and the orphan. James says that that's pure, pure religion. 1 John, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our love for God is demonstrated in our love for others. It's not just lip service. It's not just something we say. The people still protest their guilt. Verse 35, they keep saying they're innocent. And so he says, my judgment's going to fall on you not only for your sin, but also for the fact that you claim to be without sin. They will be put to shame by the very powers that they are looking to to deliver them. He says in verse 37 that you will not prosper by them. Egypt, Assyria, the Baals, all of these things that you're looking to to save you, you will not prosper by them. Now we can admit it's, it's, it's hard to acknowledge when we're wrong. It's none of us. I mean, we could make stereotypical comments like men have a harder time with this than women. I think it's probably true uh, for a lot of men that it's hard to admit when we're wrong. But it's hard for all of us. Nobody likes to admit that they're wrong. Nobody likes to say, I'm sorry. But what God is presenting to Judah here is simply this. You will either humble yourself before him or he will humiliate you in judgment. You will either humble yourself before him in repentance or he will humiliate you in judgment. Now, this is not a popular thing that you will hear in our culture, especially in a time where many in our society try to portray God in a very simplistic way as simply this kind of warm-hearted creature in the sky, grandfatherly person that just wants to grant your wishes. That's not who God is. He's neither simplistic nor can he be described in one sense. We know that God's love is everlasting. We know that His mercy knows no end. But He, because He is holy, cannot and will not tolerate sin. Something has to be done to deal with our sin. We cannot approach Him for mercy without first acknowledging our sinfulness. Now, if you find yourself thinking, I'm not that bad, or I'm not as bad as, don't point fingers right now, Let me encourage you to take some time to dwell deeply on the character of God. Look at his attributes. Look who he is. We have way, 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 way too small a view of who God is. And when we see who he is, if you you want some help in this, I don't know if the books are out there on the table, but you can write these titles down. Holiness of God, I'm going to quote from it in a minute, by R.C. Sproul. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. That was, both of those books were very formative for me and, and, and really grasping how great God is. Dwell on who he is. And in doing so, you will realize, especially when we focus on his holiness, just how sinful we really are, how needy we really are, how helpless we really are. I mentioned Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. He writes there, Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God then, and he will exalt you in due time.
In the, the first five verses of chapter 3, the last section we'll look at, this is the transition between the indictment and the judgment and the call for the people to return to the Lord. The, word, the Hebrew word for, for the root word for call is used more by Jeremiah than any other prophet in the Old Testament, some 125 times. He is calling them to return. And yet, as I mentioned in the very beginning, one of the themes of this book is this impossibility that they can or will return. The fact that they could ever be saved, it just seems impossible. They haven't sinned once or twice, but over and over again. Look at the language in verse 1. Playing the whore with many lovers. They have polluted their entire land with idolatry. They've done this willfully and repeatedly. How can they ever be saved? The picture of divorce is used to show that it's been broken. The marriage is severed. Who can repair what has been torn asunder? At the end of verse 5, he clearly states, you have done all the evil that you could. Again, this hyperbolic language to drive home the point that they are hopeless. Hopeless. Who would ever save such a people? The answer. The answer is found not in them improving their lives, not in living better or making better choices, not in self-improvement, but in repentance and turning to God. James paints this picture for us. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. It's the complete opposite of the way we think. The complete opposite. We live in a culture that says, be proud, be strong, know your own identity, set your own identity, create your own reality, create your own brand, present your own brand, market yourself, be all about you. You only live once. On and on and on we're taught that this is how to live your best life now. And we come to Scripture and we find the exact opposite message, that the way up is down. Humble yourself before God, and He will exalt you. Just as Judah could not find rescue in their idols, in the foreign powers that they ran to, or even in calling God their father and friend like they do at the end of the passage, that's their way of clinging to their tradition. Going out and living like they want to all the time and then running to church on Sunday or maybe one Sunday a year and saying, God have mercy on me, but I'm gonna, I know I'm going to run out these doors and just go back and do whatever I want. That's the way they were living. Just as they could not find rescue in any of these things, neither can we. In nothing other than Jesus, our Savior. Zechariah foretold the grace of God that would come in the person of Jesus that would lead us to repentance and salvation. He wrote, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Jeremiah also foretold of the salvation that would come in Jeremiah 33.8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Here's the picture that's painted. What was impossible, what was hopeless, God did. He did it in the person and the work of Jesus. And so for us, the call is then to repent and trust in Him. But it's not just a one-time repent and trust and have an experience, but to walk in repentance and walk in faith. 
That's the fruit of our genuine faith, that we continue to repent. Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? In in, uh, question 76, this is the answer. The language I know is a little archaic. Listen. Listen to what it says. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as is penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins, as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. That's what the life of repentance looks like. And so may we be a people who lead in repenting. May we be the first to repent in our homes, in all of our relationships, in our, in our marriages, in, in our jobs, in our church, in our communities. May we be a people who lead in repentance. May we be the first to say, I was wrong. May we also demonstrate that the repentance that we live in Christ is, it bears a fruit. It's a fruit of good works. We don't walk around in our own self-righteousness, but we walk around with humility. It changes the way we live, and in doing so, we become this fragrant aroma, the Bible says, the aroma of the gospel of grace. Ephesians 5 verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13, 15, Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 2.15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And so may we be a people who, as we come before our holy God this day, we say with the psalmist, Deliver me from my blood guiltiness. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are this. A broken spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let's pray. Father, unless you do the work, we won't repent. We won't believe. Unless you do the work and peel back the layers, we won't see the things that we're holding on to, the idols of our hearts, the things that we would rather have and hold than Jesus. Lord, unless you do the work, we cannot change ourselves. We are hopeless. So Lord, I pray, I pray for the two categories of people here today listening. For those who have never believed that they would hear both the word that says you're a sinner and that they would hear the word that says there's forgiveness in Christ. That they would believe. They would come to a knowledge of salvation. Lord, for the believer, I pray the same thing. That they would hear the word, you're a sinner. And they would hear, but you're forgiven in Christ. Lord, may we continue to realize this. 
We so quickly forget that we're sinners. We so quickly forget that we need to confess our sin, to acknowledge that, to lean on Christ, because we come and we, we hold on to other things. We lean on other things. Lord, would you help us to see that although our salvation is a once and for all act and no one can pluck us from your hand, that we are called to live and to walk in faith and repentance as your children, to continue to acknowledge the great salvation that is ours, to continue to confess when we fail and plead with you for mercy and receive from you the complete forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, do this work that only you can do. Make us penitent in heart that we might humble ourselves before you and receive your mercy freely in Jesus. Would you strengthen our hearts to know these things? Help us to be sure. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.